Time to think about things. Things that are important. Of course, that's what we should always be thinking about, those things that are important. Before I get to the text that's going to be the basis of my remarks today, I just want you to think about the things that you're doing in life. Things that you're doing for the family, for education of you or your children. Maybe in a practical standpoint about how would you go about doing what you want to do. And maybe let's just take it to illustrate it in this way that you want to take a vacation. You want to take a trip somewhere. And it's going to be a cross-country trip. Well, what are the first things that you want to do? Well, you have to know your destination, where you're going to go. You might start by going out and getting, after you decide where you want to go, get an atlas. Why? Because that gives you the total picture. GPS systems are nice, but an atlas kind of puts things in perspective with cities and stops along the way that you might want to see. You're going to make plans. So you know if you're going several hundred miles away, you might have to spend the night someplace. You might want to make reservations. You might need to know where you're going to get gas, where you're going to, how far you're going to go so you can get fuel, uh, what attractions that you might want to see along the way. Some of them you may spontaneously stop and say, well, here's this. Let's go here. I didn't know it was on the map. Something might be just a little bit out of the ordinary that you just really want to see. So what do you do? You have to arrange the trip. You have to set things in order for back home and for the trip by doing all of those things. Back home, you're going to set things in order by making sure all the monthly bills are taken care of, as bad as that is, as painful as that is. They have to do that because you want to come back to your home and have the electricity turned off because you forgot to pay the bill, right? That would be terrible. So you're going to set your plans, you're going to set things in order so that you know things are taken care of here. Do you have pets? Do you board them? Do you take them with you? Do you have somebody come and let them out occasionally and feed them and water them and play with them, exercise them? What do you do? You have to set all of those things in order in an arranged fashion so that you can go and so that you can get to your destination with assurance that you're going to be okay. One of those things would also be taking your car or your truck in for service to make certain it's roadworthy. Tires are aired up. Radiators fine. Oil's newly changed. So you set those things in order. You do that with your home. You do that with your life. You set it in order so there's not chaos. I have a joke that I tell people that when they find out that I'm a preacher as well as doing what I do Monday through Friday. Because sometimes I'll tell them and I'll invite them often to come and see us at Central. Worship with us. And they'll say, well, where exactly is it? And I give them the address. I say, better yet, said, you know where Ashley Furniture is out here on 28th and 4th Avenue? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're going south, you turn right. If you're going north, you turn left. I said, but what you do, you stop at Ashley, you furnish your home, your house. And then you come to Central and you furnish your spiritual house. And then when you're ready to go home, we'll take you next door. So it's all in one block that we have you covered. 
And I also tell them I do stand-up comedy once in a while and don't get very many laughs. But you're setting things in order. Your home needs to be furnished and taken care of. Your spiritual house needs to be taken care of. So that when it's time to go home, you're ready. So turn with me, if you would, please, to 2 Kings chapter 20. Verses 1 through 7. This actually happened before chapter 19. And we'll see that in in verse 6 as to why I say that. Chronologically, the chapters aren't in chronological order, but here's what the text tells us. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I walk before you in truth and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add fifteen years to your life, and I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of David my servant. Then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs, and they took, took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. I don't know exactly what... Hezekiah's illness was. I don't know that anybody knows what it was, but it was an illness he wasn't going to make it out of. Without some sort of divine relief, with divine intervention, he was going to die. Because that's what the Lord told him. You're going to die. You're not going to live. He didn't tell him how long it might be. But I would think the way it sounds, it means that it's going to be relatively soon. And soon is relative. It could be two or three days. It could be two or three weeks, two or three months, maybe a year. Who knows? The Lord knew. But he was going to have time to set his house in order. Now, what might he have to do to set his house in order? Well, obviously, he was going to have to emotionally prepare himself for his event. He knew it. That's a shock. And that's going to hurt but you got to get prepared. you got to face the reality of what it is. Some people don't want to do that. Some people are told that you have lung cancer. You need to stop, or heart, heart disease. You need to stop smoking. Nah, ain't going to do it. I don't care. And Kathy's telling me, nodding at me, yep, going to eat bacon, right? Yep. <laughs> Just not as much, okay? I mean, my cardiologist said I could have a slice once in a while. But anyway, you're going to set your house, your things in order that you have to do. You have to prepare for the event. If you want to live, he wasn't going to live. He was going to die. He needed to prepare himself emotionally, spiritually, as we'll see. He also needed to prepare for the transition of his kingdom. I mean, he's king of Israel. He's got to do something. Because what's going to happen when he's gone? Which of his sons will get the throne? Practical matters of setting, getting the family prepared for the eventuality of his death. Uh, 
so that they could survive emotionally. And so his desires would be taken care of. And that they would be respected and he could go to his grave knowing exactly that. Now, a lot of times preachers will pay attention to his prayer before God and that's important how God healed him and that's important and we're going to talk about that as well just a little bit. But I want to first think about this idea of setting your house in order. Because God was giving him some time to prepare a lot of things. We just don't know how much time. What can you learn? What can we learn from Hezekiah's life here? You must set your house in order. Why? No, God has not given me a prophet uh, saying that somebody's got so much time to live. But the Hebrew writer said in chapter 9 and verse 27, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Life teaches us that we're not going to live forever. I mean, when I do a funeral sometimes, I'll talk about the four seasons of the year. You know, we have springtime. You know, that's when brides get married in June, usually. They get married all year long, I know that. But you think about things that happen in springtime. We relate to newness of life. Then we have the summer months. That's when things are maturing and we're going along great. Everything's wonderful. And then it's in the autumn years, as we talk about as a metaphor for aging. And then in the wintertime, what happens in the winter? Well, in Yuma, we get a lot of visitors. But if you're in the northern climates, it gets cold and things go dormant. They die, if you will. Flowers die. They don't go dormant. You have to replant them every year. Crops die. They've been harvested, but they're not going to live forever. Life teaches us that we're going to die. In Luke chapter 12, and verse 13... There was an individual, and he says, it was someone in the crowd, Luke 12, verse 13 and following, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, beware and on your guard for every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable. The land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there uh, there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and not toward God. You see, he needed to set his house in order. He was looking at only one dimension of life. And we need to look at that dimension. So I have here in my notes, there are some practical things that we have to look at. We have to look at the financial and legal matters of life, of this life. We want to prepare for our family. We want to take care of them today and tomorrow. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He talked about families. He talked about taking care of them. And he said in verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith 
and is worse than an unbeliever. A Christian, someone who's God taught and told and reminded of the shortness of life and about relationships that they have, they need to be providing for their families because that is good to do. Unbelievers sometimes don't do that. Now, that may be hard to imagine, but I know we can go to news type, you know, to the newspapers and magazines. We can find cases where families don't take care of their children, of their families. And that's wrong. And the only way that we're going to take care of them is by having, taking the financial resources that we have, some for today, some for tomorrow, some for an emergency. We're going to have to deal with people that maybe we just don't want to deal with because, oh, they talk in legalese, they're called attorneys. And we know they're going to charge us a bunch of money, but sometimes things are necessary to be done so that things are set in order. What else do we have to put into order? How about relationships? Paul would talk in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, following, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. He might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So there's the importance of making sure the marital relationship is working out. That you're dealing with things. And part of that might be taking magazines that deal with marital issues, reading books on strengthening your marriage, and that's, that's a topic, a title that could be for any book, but it's, I'm just using it as a category, if you will. But then the children are involved as well. Children, obey your parents, verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's the family relationships that we're concerned about. And in all relationships that we have with people within the church, with outside the church as well, that we want them to be noble. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, You're going to the, present your offering on the altar. And you remember that your brother has something against you. Stop. Put your offering at the side of the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. God wants us to be right with one another when we come before Him in worship. That you've done everything that you possibly can to make the relationship work. Granting forgiveness, seeking forgiveness, if need be. Set your house in order. But most importantly is going to be the spiritual aspect of life. On our Wednesday night class we're talking about being spiritual. Our verse for that is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, 
Even if anyone is caught in any, if anyone is caught in any trespass, the sin that they were just boom, it just happened. Whoops, a sin that just happened. You who are spiritual, not knowledgeable, spiritual, not a long time Christian, but a spiritual man or woman. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Now, a spiritual person is going to be one of those, I think, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 16, he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law, verse 18. Then he gives us the deeds of the flesh, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. You put those on. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God if you do those things, he says. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You're walking by the Spirit of God. You're put off the deeds of the flesh. You're putting on and growing spiritually, becoming more more loving, more joyful, more peaceable, more patience, showing more kindness more goodness in your life. You know, those are some of the markers that we look at as we grow in Christ. And I say that because, you know, we're going to leave a legacy behind. And it may not just be material wealth. It's great to be able to leave something behind for our children, for our grandchildren. I do like the bumper sticker that says I'm spending my children's inheritance. But, you know, really... That's the opposite of what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The message says, the translation by Eugene Peterson, a good life gets passed on to the grandchildren. The Amplified Version says, a good man leaves an inheritance of moral stability and goodness to his children, to his children's children. The other translations are pretty much like the New American Standard. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. One translation says, The heritage of a good man is handed down to his children's children. The heritage. What is that heritage that you want to leave your children? That of you were a noble Christian. That you were walking by faith and not by sight. Peter would say it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. I think that sounds like a lot like what the Amplified Version says. Moral stability and goodness. All moral excellence. And when you think about two aspects here I have in my notes from William Hershey Davis what's the difference between character and reputation you want to be have a good you want to have good character or a good reputation well listen to these things reputation is what you're supposed to be 
Character is what you are. Reputation is what you have when you come to a new community. Character is what you have when you go away. Reputation is made in a moment. Character is built in a lifetime. Reputation grows like a mushroom. Character grows like an oak. Your reputation is learned in an hour, but your character does not come to light for a year. A single newspaper report gives your reputation. A life of work gives your character. Reputation makes you rich or poor. Character makes you happy or miserable. Reputation is what men say on your tombstone. Character is what angels say about you before the throne of God. Your reputation is what men think you are. Your character is what God knows you to be. Character. Reputation. Slight difference, if you will. Character will impact generations for years to come. In 1900, there was a study done of a couple of families. One man, Max Jukes, did not believe in religion. He was an atheist. He married a girl who was an atheist, didn't believe in religion. From this union ultimately came 1,026 descendants. Studies showed that 300 of them died prematurely. I don't know what the cause was. 100 were sent to the penitentiary. 190 sold themselves to vice. 100 were drunkards. And the family cost the entire the state of New York in 1900 1.1 million dollars. That's a lot of money in 1900. Another man, Jonathan Edwards, believed in God and in his Christian training married a girl of like character. From that union there were 729 descendants. They studied them, they discovered that 300 were preachers. 65 were college professors, 13 were university presidents, 6 authors, Three U.S. congressmen, one was vice president of the United States. Hopefully the congressman and vice president were men of noble character. They were in Congress after all. But not all in Congress are of bad character. It's quite a perspective on setting their house in order. One family didn't, and one family did. Now when we go back to the story of Hezekiah... And we read what was said about it, what happened. It says, set your house in order, because you're going to die and not live. He turned his face to the wall and prayed, Lord, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth with a whole heart, and you have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah was able to say those things because of the life he lived. And maybe that's why God heard his prayer. Because Hezekiah said, Lord, I'm in the middle of my life. He would have been a young man had he died at this point. A very young man. As it was, God gave him 15 more years. So he lived to be of normal age probably at that time. Maybe not as old as some, but more mature and older than others. But maybe it was because God looked at his life and said, you know what? He has walked before me with his heart, his whole heart before you. He's done what is good in my sight. It doesn't mean he did everything perfectly. It just means that he was doing better than he, he was trying. He was trying to walk with God. And that's what we're attempting to do. To walk in the light as he is in the light. Let the blood of his son Jesus cleanse us from all sin. 
That's what it's about. It's about leaving that noble character. A good man leaves an inheritance, a heritage to his children's children. Something that they can look up to and say, there is a man of God. There is a woman of God who trusted God. Their life lives as they were of moral excellence, moral stability and goodness. How do we show them that? By letting them hear you pray. By letting them know that you're coming to the Lord's Day. You're assembling with God's people when they assemble. You know, the Hebrew writer said in chapter 10, verse 25, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the custom of some, but encourage one another, all the more so as you see the day approaching. I believe the day approaching was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Why do I say that? Why else would you want to go back into Judaism? You had friends there. You had family there. Christians were a small sect of Judaism at that time. They weren't mainstream. There weren't thousands and thousands of them. You had friends. They had your funeral. You go back home, you'll have a resurrection. They'll take you back in. But if you're locked up with these Christians, there's just a few of you. How are you going to have relationships for protection, for food, for shelter in persecution times? Because to the Romans, one Jew, Christian by spirit, or But Jew by race looks exactly like a Jew who is a Jew by faith. That's why they might go back. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we're going to leave an example of faithfulness. That we believe in the power of the assembly when we're together to encourage one another, to hear the word of God proclaimed, to hear it taught. We want them to know that we read our Bibles at home and that we pray often and that they hear us pray so that they know this is real. We're going to set our house in order so that we leave that heritage for our children and for our children's children so that every generation will know of your faithfulness. Hezekiah was blessed. He was truly blessed. He was given a second chance, you might say. But then so are we. His appointed unto man wants to die and end in judgment. But Jesus died on the cross so that we could have that second chance. You just need to surrender your life to Him. Give your life to Him in faith that you believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that He will take away your sins because it's by His blood our sins are forgiven. My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Burdens are lifted at Calvary because the blood of Jesus was shed in His death on the cross. The tomb is empty, gives us the hope of the resurrection. Set your house in order. Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. I don't know what day that is for you. don't know what day it is for me. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years from today. It could be 120 years from today. Who knows? God knows. Are you ready? Set your house in order today if you've not already done so. And if you need help... Come and be immersed into Christ. Have your sins washed away. If you've done that and you've struggled and you've strayed, 
Come back home to Jesus. Well, together we stand and sing this hymn.